Our scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 3 this morning. Genesis chapter 3, if you will please turn your Old Testaments there. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow... You will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And he drove the man out. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word now, we ask that you would teach us. 
Open our hearts and minds that we might receive wonderful things from your law. Father, we are in need of a good word today. Speak to us. Open our hearts that we might be blessed and encouraged and we might in turn be a blessing and encouragement to others as we share that greatest of news, which is ours today in Christ. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This was a glorious weekend of hope for many among us here in our state of Mississippi. Yea, even around the world, it was a glorious weekend of hope. Now, I'd like to say that the reason that I make that pronouncement, that it was a weekend of hope, was because it was filled with anticipation for today, for the beginning of Advent. I'd like to think it was because we were all so filled with the gratitude of a blessed Thanksgiving day that that we were prepared, even anxious, to dive headlong into a season where hope for peace on earth would burn more brightly than ever before. But the truth is, The hope that we've all been seeing on display this weekend is a whole lot more mundane than what I just painted, and we might as well be honest about it. I mean, for many people, this was a time of hope, yes, but it was a time of hope that our team, despite its record so far this season, would rise up and beat its rival in a magnificent display of heart versus talent. For some, of course, that hope was realized, and alas, for others from my home state anyway, it was not. But for others... This was a time of hope, but not hope for the football field, but hope for the mall and the Walmart. Hope that the electronic gear that someone near and dear to us had longed for and had asked for, that hope that it would still be there on the shelves and still be on sale even after the shark-like feeding frenzy of 4 a.m. Friday morning was over. For still others, this weekend was a time of hope, hope that that trophy buck, would come walking out into the open at long last after all of those years in a frigid deer stand. And that way we know we'd have something special to give our wives for Christmas because we know that deep in their hearts they've always wanted a deer head to hang over the mantle in the living room. A weekend of hope. Hope's a funny thing, isn't it? When we have it, we feel alive no matter what might be going on around us. When it's hanging in the balance, we are anxious and afraid of the future. When it's gone, it feels like all is lost and can never be found again. And as I've seen people, including myself, to be quite honest about it, go through each one of those stages with hope, time and time again over the 30 years that I've been doing ministry, I have come to appreciate the extraordinary power of hope. And that's why the passage we're going to be looking at this morning is so intriguing to me, because it is a passage believe it or not, that is all about hope. Not only hope lost, but hope found again as well. And to be honest, it's been kind of funny to see the reaction of people when they've asked me this week what I plan to preach on today. They know it's the first week of Advent, and when we think of Advent, we think of joyful songs and beautiful lights and burning candles and and upbeat sermons about the themes of the season. But the passage that Wilson read for us here that we're going to be spending some time in is truly one of the darkest in all of the scriptures. And yet everything that makes Advent what it is, is found right here in these verses. And so as we take a few minutes to look into them again this morning, what I want you to see here is this, that hope for a world without hope came alive again when God stepped in. Hope came alive again when God stepped in. You see, the Bible tells us that our native condition as a human race is hopelessness. 
In our sin, in our rebellion, we have cut ourselves off from the God who made us for himself. And in our spiritual deadness, there is nothing we can do to reverse that situation. And that, my friends, is the very definition of hopelessness. And it's this fundamental spiritual hopelessness, you see, that ultimately fuels every other experience of hopelessness that I feel in life as well. And even if that's where we start, though, that's not where we have to end up. And the reason I can say that is found right here in both the bad news and the good news that's packaged in this passage before us. So with that in mind, I want us to begin. You see, first of all, we need to start this morning with the bad news. And the bad news is simply this. Hope died that day in the garden. Hope died that day in the garden. Now, nobody likes to get bad news. And yet, in a world like ours, bad news is inevitable. You know, back in the time when my parents were in their declining years and their health was going down, I began to realize after a while that every time the phone rang and the caller ID was from Pensacola, Florida, it was more bad news. It got to the point where I was almost phobic about ringing phones. I couldn't sleep at night because somewhere just under the surface of consciousness was that anxiety that the phone was going to ring. And, you know, the reason behind the feeling was that the situation changed for the worse every time it did. Well, what I learned at that time was just how viscerally we feel it when something that really matters changes for the worse. And that's exactly what happens here in the third chapter of Genesis. Now, it's important to realize as we look into this that, that as this chapter begins, it begins at a place where the human race has never been since. It begins at a place where we as a human race have never seen since the moment that this took place. If we go back to Genesis chapter 2, we can see what a remarkable position in the universe this first man occupies as this most magnificent of God's creations. We can see there in chapter 2 that he has a personal relationship with his creator in a way that no other creature shares. We can see that he has a place to call home, a place that is shaped and fashioned by God himself just for him. It's a place, a garden, in fact, that meets his needs and provides the venue for constant fellowship with the God who's made it and has so lovingly lovingly given it to him. Not only that, in chapter 2, we see that man has a purpose. We see that that he has a purpose in life that's meaningful and fulfilling and God-ordained as he's given this garden called a tendon and he's given this earth and called to subdue it. And finally, we see there in that chapter that he has a companion who is so beautifully designed for him that she is literally a piece of himself, a companion that is fashioned by God himself to complete what was lacking in this wonderful world in which this man has been placed. And that brings us to the last verse of chapter 2 that says it all. It says there in verse 25 of chapter 2, it says, The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. In other words, what Moses who wrote this tells us is that the man and his wife were physically naked because they had no need of clothing to protect them from a world that wasn't there to hurt them, that wasn't there to harm them in some way if they were exposed to it. But you see, far more significantly than just the outward is that they had no need of spiritual covering either. They were spiritually innocent and pure, as pure as the day they were created. And because of that, they were at peace. They were at peace with themselves. They were at peace with their world. They were at peace with their God and He with them. Now, we read over all of this so quickly sometimes that we miss the impact of what Moses is describing for us here. 
That's true. It's hard to miss a place that you've never seen. But, you know, every time we think about our lives, every time we think about our guilt and our unbelief, every time we think about our struggles and our suffering, every time we think about our conflicts with people around us or the conflicts that rage even inside us at times, every time we think about those things and wish we were somewhere else, this is the country that we're dreaming of, whether we know it or not. And yet, you see, as magnificent as all of this was, it wasn't enough. As Wilson read for us a moment ago, as chapter 3 opens, it opens with a conversation. It opens with a conversation between one of God's creatures and the woman. A woman, by the way, who was technically in charge of that serpent and should have been giving it orders, not the other way around. But that said, what we see here in the beginning of this conversation is that the serpent had been co-opted by Satan to be the instrument of a terrible and seductive temptation. And you see, the poison at the core of that temptation was the evil one's intent to get this woman to question the heart of God for her and for her husband. First of all, it starts with the serpent planting a seed of confusion and doubt about the goodness of God, and he does it in such a funny way. The serpent was more crafty, it says, than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made, and so a fitting, a fitting instrument for temptation to be brought along there. He said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? You realize here you get the serpent as sympathizer coming alongside the woman to say, Look, Look at this beautiful place. And God told you that you can't eat any of this? Well, she said, of course, no, because she knew the, the truth of the matter. She told the serpent the truth. But a seed was planted nonetheless. And at that moment, the serpent goes for the kill shot. And he does that by charging God with being a jealous God who is petty and afraid of these creatures that he'd made and who had lied to them by, about dying in order to bully them into submission. Oh, God's not telling you the truth, he says. You're not going to die. He knows that when he made you, he made something special. In fact, something so special, he's frightened of you. He knows that if you knew the truth, you would rise up and seize divinity just like that. It could be yours. But he's so mean. He's lied to you. He's told you if you touch that, you're going to die. Why? Because he's got to protect himself from you. Well, you see, friends, from what we see here, once Eve began to question God's motives for keeping them from just one tree in the garden, the deed was done. And so it tells us that she looked at the fruit on that tree that God had forbidden, and she began to think about it. And she began to think about herself and not about God. And not about his commands, about his desires and all that he had done for her. And as she looked there, what she looked at, she saw. And what she saw, she liked. And what she liked, she wanted. And what she wanted, she took. And what she took, she shared. And there in that very moment, the world in which they lived up until that moment died. And hope died with them. Hope not just for them, but for everyone in the entire human race born from them. And friends, that includes you and me and everyone else without exception. You know, Moses says here that the serpent told them the truth, sort of. He told them that their eyes would be open, and sure enough, they were. But when those eyes opened, instead of seeing the glory of divine knowledge burst on their sight, what in fact they saw were themselves, and they experienced the terror of spiritual exposure. 
And from that moment on, they and all of their children, including us, have tried to do whatever we could to cover ourselves and somehow try to keep hope alive, even though we know somewhere deep inside of us that it's died. Now, we're a little more sophisticated than the man and the woman here. They try to cover themselves, so they are very practical. They go and find the largest leaves that they can find in the garden, and they sew them together to try and make coverings. But obviously, that doesn't do the trick because they felt the need to hide in the trees so that God wouldn't find them when he came to see them as he did in the cool of the day. But you see, we're just like them. We try to make coverings for ourselves out of homemade religions and self-generated attempts at righteousness. We try to hide from God and the trees of, of busyness in our lives, of being too important to think about that stuff, and a thousand other things that we do to keep God away from us so that we can tend to things ourselves. But nothing really works. And somewhere deep inside of us, we know that we really are what Paul says that we are, without God and without hope in the world. And one of my great learning moments in preaching came when I helped out uh, at our church back in Gadsden, Alabama, back when we were working at a Christian children's home. Steve Jessley, who's now a pastor over, over in Flowood, was our pastor then, and I would preach from time to time to give him a break. And, and this was an evening service uh, that I was preaching, and so I got dressed uh, in a dark closet, and I hopped in my car with my mind on my sermon, and I drove five or six miles to the church, and I hopped out of the car there and walked into the church building where it was brightly lit, and I looked down, and I realized I was wearing one black shoe and one brown shoe with my suit that night. A very stylish look that hasn't caught on, I must say. Now, at the Rainbow Church, the preacher sat on the platform the entire service, not sort of back in the far corners, but sort of right here, sort of right behind the pulpit. And it was this, you sh- I mean, it was in a corner too, so there were people on all sides of you. And I spent the entire service there trying to figure out all the different ways you can keep your feet from being seen while being seated on a platform in front of 100 people. It was challenging. You know, I put my foot around behind this way, and then I put another foot around behind that way, and I sort of did this, and I tried to have this extra smooth look on my face so that people wouldn't look down at my shoes and all the rest of it. I was so relieved when I could finally stand up to preach because at least I could stand behind the pulpit, but it didn't really help because it was almost in the round, and there were people over there and people over there, and so I finally just said, I confessed it because I couldn't stand it any longer. Now, you know, I can still feel the discomfort that I felt that night, as I described that to you, sort of down in there still, this worry about looking foolish in front of a hundred of my friends, I can feel that. But I have to tell you, I cannot begin to imagine what the man and the woman felt that afternoon in the garden when they heard God approaching and they saw themselves and their naked ambition as they were. And they realized that they were about to face God for the very first time in that condition. You know, it was such a miserable feeling for me sitting on that platform that night. I was dressed so ridiculously, I felt, and I couldn't do a thing about it. I couldn't change it. I couldn't hide it. I couldn't fix it. I was just stuck. And that's what hopelessness feels like, my friends. That's what it feels like. And every man, woman, and child that has ever been born except one knows exactly what that feels like as we stand before God, just like the man and the woman did here. We know, like they did, 
that we have doubted God's goodness and taken His gifts for granted. We know, like they did, that we've rebelled against the rule and the reign of God so that we could pretend to be gods ourselves and run our own little worlds the way we want to run them. And we know, just like they did, that no excuse ultimately will do and no cover-up ultimately will work. And that's why I say hope died that day in that garden. At least the kind of hope that we feel when we still think that we can fix things or cover things in our own strength and our own power. That kind of hope died. So that's the bad news. This chapter is absolutely chock full of it. And you may be getting it for the very first time today. It may also be that you're getting it all over again this morning as you see it again here. But let me tell you, friends, if you are starting to sense something inside you that is uncomfortable, what you are feeling at this moment is hopelessness. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing because having a sense of our hopelessness is the first step toward understanding and appreciating the other thing that this passage shows us. And that's this, that hope came alive again when God stepped in. Hope came alive again when God stepped in. Now, I've noticed recently that there is a familiar plot device that all of the alphabet autopsy shows seem to be using on TV these days. You know, if, you, if you're going to do an autopsy, you've got to have letters in front of your name, not anything else. And so you kind of figure that out. But anyway, this plot device works like this. In the first five minutes of every show, there's a crime that produces the body that produces the obligatory autopsy. Then in the next 45 minutes, people run all over the place collecting DNA samples from everything they can touch until they figure out who the bad guy is and where he's going to strike next. Then in the last five minutes, the camera zooms in and shows us the bad guy with his weapon raised about to kill again. And at that very moment, the good guys kick in the door, rescue the victim, dispatch the bad guy, and crack one last joke before the Geico Gecko comes out one more time to sell you insurance. So what's the point, other than I need to read a book now and then, I suppose? Well, if you can get the feel for the drama of those last five minutes, why that device so works with the way we're wired, then you can appreciate to some degree what happens in this passage when God steps into the scene. And the good news for each one of us here this morning is that when God does that, He immediately begins to restore the hope that was lost only moments before. You see, in the greatest surprise of the entire chapter, when God steps in here, He does so in grace rather than in wrath. Now, as you can imagine, the thing that terrifies the man and the woman here, the thing that drives them into hiding is that they confident that they are going to get exactly what they deserve for what they've done. They know they're naked physically and spiritually, and what's worse, they know why they know. And that, I suspect, is why they assumed that they would be executed on the spot when God arrives. That's what they had been warned against when God had forbidden them to eat the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And frankly, given the huge and horrible surprise that they experienced when their eyes were opened, I doubt they believed the assurances of the serpent by now that surely they would not die. And you know, if all that weren't enough, I suspect they were equally horrified at the idea of facing the God whose goodness and truth they had so delighted in moment by moment by moment from the moment they were created. And 
that they had then doubted and despised so easily earlier in that day. Now, I don't know about you, but if I caught one of my kids doing something they shouldn't do, I don't think grace was always my first response. I'm pretty sure that I always felt anger, sometimes exasperation. I'm pretty sure that I felt disappointment at times and and frustration with my own parenting skills. I'm quite certain I felt embarrassment and shame even if someone else was looking when I caught them doing something. But grace always came later and harder, if it came at all, because I'm not a particularly gracious parent, just like all the rest of you. But you know, because God is the gracious God He is, this scene went a different way from what they and what we might expect. After all, from the moment God steps in here, grace is on display. Now before we look at that more closely, where we really dig into that, it's important to realize that God doesn't ignore what's happened here. Grace does not ignore sin. He certainly doesn't trivialize it. He doesn't wave it off as if it doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. Forget about it. Not a problem. That's not how God responds here. No. God confronts this sin head on as he calls Adam out of the trees and demands an explanation for what has happened. And he doesn't stop at the first excuse that's offered either, but he drills down and down and down until he gets to the root of the sin in his confrontation with the serpent here. And for what God says... Their choice to follow the serpent and to break God's command will have lifelong consequences for them and for everyone else who follows them in this now fallen and fractured world. Their callings, God says, would be lived out in pain and in frustration. Their relationships would be marked by struggle and rival and self-interest. And the way forward for them from this point on in this life would be the way of death. And nothing symbolizes that more clearly than how God bars the entrance to the garden and to the tree of life within it as he sends them out of there into this fallen world which they now have to live and to live out there until they return to the dust from which God had made them. Very sobering response to sin. And yet as sobering and as comprehensive as that judgment on sin might be, what is even more striking is the way that God steps in immediately to bring redemption as well as judgment. Now we see this grace when he first speaks to them. He doesn't come demanding. He doesn't come crushing. He comes calling. Where are you, Adam? Where are you? Come. Come back to me. Come out of the trees and back into relationship. We see this grace as well when God provides skins to, pro- to cover them and to protect them once the confrontation's over. Their attempts had been so pitiful, but God's is so adequate and so gracious. And as he sends them out to endure the consequences of their own sin, he does so by protecting them and preparing them and to send them out. And we see it even when he bars the way back into the garden because that's a protection too. Because God did not intend for them to seize the tree of life and be confirmed in eternity in this state, but in fact he had something more and better for them and for us. But ultimately, most of all, I think we see this grace when God steps in between them and the serpent and pronounces in that moment words of condemnation on this one who sought to destroy what he had made. Notice what he says here. It's so fascinating. First he speaks to the man, 
in verse 11. Then he speaks to the woman in verse 13. Once she confesses that the serpent deceived me and I ate. It says, so the Lord God said to the serpent. And it's almost as if at that moment he turns from the man and the woman and faces the serpent standing between them and it. And that's exactly what he does there. He says to the serpent, Cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And here's the key. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. You see, at that moment, God declares that there will be a war. There will be a battle that would begin in that moment that would be a fight ultimately to the finish. On the one side, he says, would be the seed of the serpent, all those who would follow Satan into rebellion in a desire to dethrone God and put themselves in his place. And on the other side would be the seed of the woman, those who belong to the true and the living God in this world and who live their lives for him. And according to God here, when that battle comes to its climax... The seed of the serpent will be destroyed by the great champion of the seed of the woman, that one seed of the woman above all, who will deliver a fatal strike that will crush the serpent's head forever. Now, without a doubt, that language is poetic, it's cryptic, it clearly means more than what the woman would have heard just standing there on that day. And yet there was something in those words that made hope come alive again in Adam. And if we don't look closely, we'd miss it. But look at verse 20. It says, Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. You know how in the Bible when something new, something great is about to happen, oftentimes a new name is given to signal that God has stepped in to do a new thing, to do a great thing, to do a gracious thing. And that's what we see here. Somehow Adam heard words of hope here in the midst of all of this pronouncement of the consequences of his sin. And he gives his wife this name of Eve because she would be the mother of the living. And that would ultimately include this one great seed of the woman whose coming we long for in Advent the one who absorbed the strike of the serpent on the cross at Calvary on our behalf that day, but who unleashed there in that place the crushing blow on sin and death and hell in his death and in his resurrection, just as God had promised in this first word of the gospel that he proclaims to them and to us here in verse 15. You know, to go from despair To hope within such a short span of time must have been hard for Adam and Eve to take in. It's hard for us to get our heads around just reading it. But then again, as anyone who has ever come to know the grace of God in the gospel can tell you, grace is like that. Grace is like that. It comes at a speed sometimes that we just can't fathom. It comes with a strength that we can't always fully grasp. And it always comes with a sheer graciousness that can be so overwhelming that we simply can't believe that it's true, and yet it is. And you see, friends, it's that God who invites all of us here to embrace the good news of gospel hope all over again this morning. Perhaps you're here and you've never done that before. Perhaps this is the first time the light has dawned on you. Well, let me tell you, friends, This is what you do. You run to the light. You accept the invitation. And along with that invitation to live in hope, we also 
take our places right alongside Adam and Eve to live not just in faith and in confidence of what has happened, but also to live in anticipation as we look forward toward the complete fulfillment of the promise that is still to come. That day when the seed of the woman will take his rightful place in triumph when he returns in power and in glory at the end of the age. And friends, that's what Advent is all about. A couple of years ago, I read a fascinating book by Winston Groom, the guy that wrote Forrest Gump. and uh, He's actually quite a good historian. And, and the book was simply entitled 1942. And it tells the story of the most amazing year of any of the years in which World War II was fought. If you know anything about your history, know that 1942 dawned very badly for the Allies. There was the disaster at Pearl Harbor that had just happened, and the ships were still, I mean, things were still burning in the harbor there just about as the year began. Britain was still waiting and still watching for a German invasion. Soviet Russia was on the verge of total collapse. But by the end of that year, the Japanese advance across the Pacific had been stopped at midway, and they only went backwards after that. The German advance across Russia had been stopped at Stalingrad, and they eventually only went backwards after that. And far from waiting to be invaded, Britain and their allies, the United States, were now the invaders with an army marching across North Africa in the first phase of the conquest of the Third Reich. It really was an amazing year. Well, you know, friends, what we're looking at here in Genesis 3 is our 1942. It's got it all. It's got the bad beginning. It's got the rebirth of hope. But most of all, it points us forward to years of battle, but with a certain ending, an ending that can give us hope for ourselves and for our world, no matter what may be going on within us or around us. And it can do so, my friends, because God stepped in. He stepped in first to a garden, eventually to a manger, ultimately to a cross. And triumphantly one day we'll step through the skies as we sing in that great hymn at Easter. If you come here today, friends, and you feel hopeless, let me invite you to open your heart to him again today. Invite him to step into your heart, to forgive you, to give you life, to give you a hope and a future as he's promised. If you're here and you know that hope but you've lost grip on it, Ask Him to stir it to life again because that hope is real and sure and good and true. Ask God to help you see things as they truly are so that hope can be restored in you no matter what you're facing right now. May God give us grace to live in the light of this hope, to live in the strength of it, to live in the encouragement of it, to live in the anticipation of it, not only this Advent season but every day of our lives. From this day on, that's what it means when God steps in. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so for your kindness to us. We thank you, Father, that although the darkness fell in this world, there was never a moment when there was not a light burning as well. And, Father, we thank you for the hope of this one who is the light and life, who has come to us whose coming we celebrate this time of year, but who we remember and rely on each and every day. Father, I pray for each of us here today, for the ones who might be here who are wrestling with these things, perhaps have come to grasp their own hopelessness before you in themselves and their desperate need of your grace and the hope that Jesus supplies. Perhaps they've seen that for the first time today. 
Father, I ask that you would draw them to yourself now. Help them to simply turn to you, to confess their need, to ask for your forgiveness, to open their hearts to you. And Father, may you step in and bring transformation as you've promised in your word. Father, for all who are here today, who have embraced that hope, who live in that hope, and yet may find hope flickering, Father, stir it again to life. Father, may we look into the magnificence of this chapter of your, of your word, look all the way back to our beginnings, and see there this hope that has only grown brighter and brighter until it's burned most brightly in the resurrected Son who sits at your side right now and who will come again. Father, hear us as we come before you. Fill our hearts with hope, we pray, and fill us with worship of the God of hope, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.